Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Disney reports earnings after the close. One of the most fascinating uh, aspects of the U.S. media business or global media business is how a lot of these traditional media companies uh, are trying to pivot to more technology-driven streaming companies, trying to get that valuation from Netflix. And there's one banker out there who's making it all happen for the technology side of the um, media business. And that's Terry Quaja, founder and CEO of Luma Partners Investment Banking, based here uh, in New York. I used to work with Terry back in the day at Solomon Brothers and First boss, and when he was putting all the traditional media companies together back in the day, now he's uh, kind of working with the new wave of technology-driven uh, media companies. So, Terry, thanks so much for joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, again, let's start with a company like a Disney. These companies are really trying to transform themselves from the old model based upon advertising and subscription revenue to streaming. Can they do it? Yeah, great to be with you, Paul and, and Lisa. So here we are in the middle of what is one of the largest industries, right? There's over $100 billion of advertising and probably uh, another $150 billion in paid dollars uh, that support the sort of TV slash, you know, video media channel. And all of a sudden, these massive companies with enormous market caps, you know the names, Comcast, Disney, Charter, uh, uh, etc., all have a crisis, a beyond existential crisis, as they effectively have to swap out their engines while keeping the plane in the air, <laughs> right? They got to support those market caps with a fundamental change, not only in the technology of the delivery of their media and advertising, but also uh, the channel in which consumers have chosen to consume their content. Right. So the idea being that they are moving online. And the question is, with something like what Disney is doing so far, They've been rewarded more than other companies for investing, even though it's not going to make money. How long can that continue at a time when there are big questions about how much subscribers are willing to pay and how many services they're willing to subscribe to? So look, Lisa, I think this is early days. So I think all the people looking at the immediate subscriber, uh, uh, new subscribers and the subscriber churn numbers of say Disney's uh, uh, Disney Plus app, I think it's way too early to uh, be looking uh, at that. I don't think we're there in terms of, you know, the, the value proposition. There's still content that hasn't gone exclusive onto Disney. So there still is some, you know, distribution rights on other platforms. We can't fully judge it yet. And let's face it, we're still in the early days where they're providing subscription uh, uh, cross promotions. It's, it's kind of free, right? You know, if you buy an iPhone, you get Apple TV. If you, you know, Disney has uh, cross promotions with Verizon. So we're in the early fanfare days of, um, uh, of streaming, the streaming wars. In fact, you know, we're at the peak of the streaming wars and we will be at the peak for the rest of the year. Think about it. When large companies have an existential threat and a, and a rationale to get a consumer product out, they market the bejesus out of it. Just remember, last fall Technical when, when yes. Disney <laughs> Plus was announced and Apple TV was announced, and this year we've got um, NBC with Peacock, uh, we have um, uh, HBO, AT&T with HBO Max, and we've got Quibi. So we are going to be in peak streaming wars 
all through 2020 and beyond. So Terry, you spent a lot of time with the advertising technology companies, companies that make the digital advertising marketplace work. They interact, obviously that's really the, the engines of the big advertising giants like Google, like Facebook, like Amazon. Do you expect the technology companies, those big technology companies uh, that have all that cash, all that free cash flow, to maybe get into the media business itself, into the content business in a bigger way? Well, I, I believe they're gonna play a major role. And listen, if you set this up as inevitably it, it, it is, a dichotomy, a war, where it is called streaming wars after all, right? It's a war, not even just amongst uh, the streaming choices, but between big media and big tech. And, and big tech has four major advantages. They've got, as you mentioned, market cap and cash on the balance sheet up the wazoo. They, they, I mean, they, can, they vastly outscale uh, the big media companies. And the big media companies are trying to catch up by doing all these you know, traditional mergers just to garner enough scale. But even still, they do not compare to big tech. Second is they've got UI down pat. I mean, your user experience on Apple products or on Netflix is just so much different than your average cable company. Um, even the more advanced ones like Comcast X1, it just, it just doesn't compare. They, they've got those uh, kind of chops. Um, so th there are just so many elements why big tech, and by the way, they have the technology at their core. They were born digital. So the big media companies, and this is the part where I put up my hand and say, thank you very much, need technology that's not technology native to them. They have to be able to avail their content across the channels that consumers want, which is OTT and digital. And to do that, right, there's so much complication. There's a Lumascape, which is a diagram of all the players in the space, you know, because let's think about it, right? Across all these channels of linear, addressable, OTT and digital, I'm getting a headache just talking about it. You know, <laughs> there's different parameters and identifying who a person is. There's different technologies to deliver the ads. Yeah. It is just a whole bunch of uh, conflation that needs to be sorted out. Terry, I'm struck by your expertise being absolutely perfect on a day like today for a variety of reasons. You specialize in coming up with valuations of what companies may become and as they become the future. And I would love to get your perspective on Tesla because right now nobody can justify the valuation based on current fact. How does one go about understanding value at a time of transformation in a company that harbors at least a dream, if not a reality? So what, what, what you're referring to, Lisa, is the complex art of uh, valuing innovation. And I call it art because, because for most mature companies with demonstrable financials and revenue and cash flow that we can all analyze and, and compare to other similar companies, most of the valuation work we do on those kind of companies, I would refer to, put it in the category of science. Right, the science of its math, its comparables, and plus or minus, you know, 10, 20 percent. You're kind of gonna get it right or right-ish. When you start talking about uh, the kind of companies that actually that I deal with, uh, that you know, get sold for like 20 times revenue, and people say to me, "Why did so and so pay 20 times revenue for that business?" And my answer is because they didn't. 20 times revenue. That it's not as though they did it as a multiplier to get to the valuation. 
we started with what is this worth to you figure out the valuation and then it's it's division to find out what the multiple was so when you look at a company like tesla yeah. i mean it's basically the future how do you value the future i mean if you were to ask people you know rational people you know are we moving towards an e uh, you know an electronic future the answer is yes so it's just hard to nail down it's not science Terry Kawaja, we've got to have you back and talk about... He needs about, more energy, I think, about talking about this topic. I, I Honestly, it's, it's such a pleasure having you uh, from every perspective. Terry Kawaja, founder and chief executive officer of Luma Partners Investment Banking in New York, talking about the intersection of big tech, big media, and big dreams. At a time of the everything rally, when perhaps we're still in Goldilocks territory, perhaps we're at the very end of it, there is a question of whether to buy junk bonds. Certainly a lot of people are doing so with a record volume of global junk bond issuance in January. Joining us now to discuss the road ahead for riskier assets within the fixed income world and beyond, uh, Tad Ravel, Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income at TCW, which has $175 billion under management. Tad, the reason why I wanted to start there, I know you've been bearish on high yield for a while and warning against some of the risk. I'm wondering what you make of the issuance that we've seen of late, including, for example, a pick toggle deal uh, that is being marketed today to finance a private equity dividend payout. <laughs> that's probably all the commentary that, that you need. Uh, pick toggle to finance a, uh, a dividend to, uh, to, to private equity uh, sponsors and LPs. So we haven't seen, obviously, that level of uh, indiscriminate uh, issuance in the junk bond market probably since the end of the last cycle. So, I mean, first of all, a couple of maybe bigger picture statements about the, the uh, below investment grade marketplace. We, we plumbed the uh, low in spreads uh, seemingly about three or four weeks ago, the start of the year. We came into the year with a lot of euphoria. Spreads are actually about 60, 70 basis points wider. So we're, we went very quickly from the low 300s to the high 300s. So there are there's a lot of cross currents going on in the market. There seems to be a lot more risk discrimination going in the market, which is to say that the double Bs uh, have done actually quite a bit better than uh, than, than the triple Cs, and um, the, the market is uh, allowing a lot of semi-excessive type of transactions to occur, such as the one you alluded to. And on the other hand, it's become also rather skeptical of uh, some of the uh, more levered uh, business models out there as well. So, Ted, I know from past discussions with you, uh, you know, you cite the concern that we are at the uh, tail end of the economic cycle. What are you seeing in terms of credit quality, uh, maybe in the portfolio that uh, in your portfolio or some of the new deals coming to the market? Well, the, uh, I guess a good starting place is to start by thinking about how much leverage is uh, embedded now in the, uh, in the credit markets generally. You've seen, moving away from high yield for a moment, there, there is something like 25% of the uh, investment-grade corporate debt market that's now sporting leverage ratios, reported leverage ratios of more than four, four turns, meaning more than four units of debt for every unit of earnings. That's significant because, you know, while this is a vast generalization, I think it's probably fair to say this, that if you were walking down the street, tripped and fell into the office of, uh, of a major rating agency, 
And uh, the first questions out of their mouth was, we've never met you before, but tell us about how much leverage is on your balance sheet. If you said to them, oh, I've got less than two turns of leverage, less than two units of debt for every unit of earnings, they'd probably say to you, you're probably investment grade. I don't need to know a whole lot more about you. But when you're at about four turns of leverage, it's probably more like, well, you'd better tell me a really good story about your, your, your business, its management, and so forth, for you not to be below investment grade. The point being is that with such a large cohort of the investment grade market, as I alluded to, 25% over four turns of leverage, the risk of reprising what we've seen in prior cycles, which is that basically somewhere between maybe a quarter to a half of the triple B marketplace tends to suffer downgrade into below investment grade, you're probably already in that territory. So uh, what can you say is that as long as people are willing to extrapolate and say tomorrow will be like yesterday and the cycle will never turn and the Fed's all powerful and all that, um, you probably don't have to worry about the rating cycle turning more pernicious, but it will at some point because all of the tinder, so to speak, is already piled up there. So what are you doing in terms of buying and selling? Well, um, we, we don't. We try not to respond too much, to, obviously, to the day-to-day -day noise. Is that the way we have always held ourselves out? Is that you should probably think about the asset price cycle as, uh, you know, roughly speaking, the way we've typically characterized it. It has three phases to it. So, in the early phase, you're supposed to be all in in terms of risk. Um, at least as, as it relates to a fixed income investor, because it's a big beta trade, is that everything trades wide, and everything trades wide because everybody got their, their fingers burnt in the last deleveraging. And so you go down the capital structure, you take on illiquid investments, you sell convexity risk. Wherever you find it, it's probably going to work out, because even if you did your fundamental analysis wrong, probably isn't going to hurt you. When you get to the late cycle, the question that we pose to ourselves, but we would pose it to anybody, is should you be underwriting credit risk, counterparty risk, the same way in the late cycle as you should in the early cycle? Now, if you're a momentum investor, you say, well, of course you should. If anything, maybe you should pile on more. Well, the value perspective says, no, you shouldn't. You're supposed to, in the late cycle, you're supposed to go back to uh, the old uh, uh, ben, uh, ben Graham dictum about bonds, that it's negative selection, and you want to avoid the more excessive uh, levels of risk-taking. So what do you do? Okay, you don't put your portfolio in cash, but you probably go as follows. You need liquidity in the late cycle, so you should have some treasuries and agency mortgages, which, by the way, uh, agency mortgages have actually fairly attractive uh, spread levels yeah. uh, for, for just – sort of ordinary run-of-the-mill yield, there are uh, at least a relatively good uh, sampling of opportunities in the investment-grade universe. Just because that market at large is significantly levered doesn't mean that opportunities don't come along. Um, they do. I mean, a year, year and a half ago, the blowout in GE spreads may have five, five and a half turns of leverage. There were some issues and concerns that people had. But at 350 basis points over treasuries, you're being paid for it. Today, uh, fast forward, the investment grade market is 90, 95 over treasuries. You have to be really selective about what you do, but you should own some. And then you're supposed to go back to the, to the premise that we said earlier, which is what are you not supposed to be owning? Because the last thing a fixed income manager, I think, really wants to uh, report back to investment committees, boards, shareholders is – you gave me all this discretion, you trusted me, and you know I bought a bunch of bonds and they're down 40, 50 points and they're not coming back, but sorry, you know you should keep <laughs> me on, on board anyway. Um, 
I think it's implicit in the mandate for a fixed income manager, at least, I mean, this, uh, look, I'm not yep. trying to legislate for the world, but this is our view of it, is right. that, the, that that's part of the expectation is that you'll be prudent in the late cycle and kind of greedy in the early cycle. It's just Warren right. Buffett in bonds. Exactly. Hey, Tad, thanks so much for joining us. Tad Ravel, Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income uh, at TCW. $175 billion under management based in Los Angeles with a consistent uh, conservative view of the fixed income markets. Recently, Warren Buffett threw in the towel on his newspaper holding, saying he just didn't see this business turning around. There is a big existential question facing the entire newspaper industry. And on the front lines of it, John Chachas, founding, founder and managing principal at Methuselah Advisors. He, he joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. And John, I see you're on the front lines because you've advised uh, Clear Channel Communications on their $18 billion buyout, the Disney Company on its 2006 sale of ABC Radio. I, I'm trying to understand what the new model will be to save an industry that by almost all measures is dying. It's a huge question. Um, thanks for having You've me. You've got uh, 90 seconds. 90 go. seconds. <laughs> Look, the newspaper industry is going to have to remake the revenue model. You can't have a revenue model, which was essentially 75% advertising based and 25% subscription based, have the advertising side of it go away piece by piece. First digital, uh, first digital killed uh, classifieds, which was the highest profit component of the advertising model. Then run of press came under gigantic pressure. So the digital impact in this industry, as it is in many industries, far, far deeper. And until they replace that with a bigger subscription side, meaning the users of the content pay for the content, the newspaper industry is in deep, deep trouble. All right. So the users, we've seen a couple of success stories in New York Times, you know, maybe the WallStreetJournal.com, FT.com, a couple of national global brands have created that kind of model, a subscription model. It's been the savior of the New York Times company, but we haven't seen many success stories or any success stories at the more local level. So what is the future? This is a public policy question. What is the future of local journalism? I think it's a, it's a huge uh, question for the local paper that's not the New York Times. New York yeah. Times is a national asset. Now, truth be told, the vast, vast majority of the readers of the New York Times are New York-centric or sophisticated urban readers. The largest paper in America, believe it or not, is USA Today. Yep. USA Today is the largest distribution paper. Um, yeah, because it has a deal with all the hotels and they can stick it in front of everybody's <laughs> yeah, that's door. That's true. It's, it's that free paper that's under your, your door. But it is still read in lots of places and picked up in airports and in hotels. And yet it doesn't, it doesn't really make money. It was a, an asset of Gannett. They built it. Great, um, great scope. Doesn't make money. The question becomes... What would happen if these papers, the Denver Post, the Salt Lake Tribune, the Chicago Tribune, the Atlanta Constitution, if they go away? And that's the existential question. They could go away, with the exception of a few of these places that are owned by very wealthy parents. The Cox family, extremely wealthy, is not going to let go of Atlanta. Jeff Bezos has bought the Washington Post to preserve it as an asset. But if, if, if you don't find a billionaire who wants to run each giant local daily paper as a mission, you have to change who's making money on it. And the right way to change it is look at how much money is being made by Google, Facebook, Twitter, and the digital giants who have access and use all of this content and don't pay a dime for it. 
nothing for it. That to me is criminal. And the newspaper industry let the mayor out of the barn, as they say, a long time ago, 15 years ago, when they should have asserted their copyright privileges and said, don't touch my stuff unless you pay me. And instead, the newspaper industry, like everyone else, thought that access to digital traffic and volume of digital traffic would be the nirvana. All right, so how do you corral the mayor? How do you get it back in? The newspaper industry has to do, it's like, it's like the patient who has a terrible cancer and needs chemotherapy. It's an ugly, ugly experience, but they're going to have to do it. 60% of digital traffic on daily papers in America, or more, is generated and coming out of Google, Facebook, Twitter, and the digital platforms sending traffic to those papers. Therefore, the digital traffic manager at the Albany paper or the Buffalo paper gets a call from his publisher saying, we've told those platforms not to not to put our stuff up on their site anymore. And that guy, the top of his head blows off because he's like, well, how am I going to have it be a business? There has to be a negotiated solution where instead of uh, using all of that content for free, they actually pay something into the industry. And there are perfectly good models for this. In the music industry, there are, there are models where users of music content pay reasonable license fees for the use of that, whether to the songwriter or the artist or the performer. Um, in the television industry, we've seen real payments go to the television stations from the cable guys who are using the signal. People forget, 15 years ago, there was no such payment. Last year, the cable guys paid $12 billion to the television stations for use of their signal. Why shouldn't the digital platforms do the same? In one minute, what's the fair use collective? Fair concept. use collective is a concept. Um, it's an idea um, uh, that we've been supportive of and the News Media Alliance in uh, Washington has been supportive of. It is a, it is a um, position that the industry comes together and a little bit like the music industry, which uses BMI and ASCAP as the intermediary, something, whether it's the Fair Use Collective or something else, acts as the representative in negotiating en masse with Google, Facebook, Twitter, Apple, and people that are using this stuff for free and gets a fair license payment and then distributes that license payment out to all the papers in a manner that's reasonable and commensurate with what they generate. Obviously, the New York Times is of the world, the Washington Post, the they're going to get a significant piece of that because they're, the, they're, the, they're what people are reading. But all of these papers need it. Imagine a world where the Chicago, Chicago Tribune disappears in terms of doing coverage on the State House in Illinois or the Denver Post doesn't exist. We are not far from that world. And so the Fair Use Collective idea is that these license payments have to be distributed across the industry to sustain these papers. John, thanks for coming in and sharing that commentary with us, those thoughts with us. It's really fascinating. I think it really goes to the heart of the matter, kind of a public policy issue. Is local journalism required in a democracy? And a lot of people obviously would say absolutely it is a certainly required. But well, given what happened in the digital world, a lot of these papers are at risk. Yeah, well, there's also a business question. How do they make money? Yeah. And at a time when people aren't really willing to pay for it and classifieds aren't really a thing in the same kind of way. Yep. Where, where's the model? Yeah, so John and, and others are thinking about that model. John Chachas, founder and managing principal, Methuselah Advisors, based here in New York City, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive uh, Brokers uh, studio, talking about that issue. So we had Terry Kowaja, former colleague of John's on earlier, talking about some of the digital aspects of business. But the other end of the equation is some of the traditional media companies, the print media companies, the local journalists have to figure out a business model uh, that supports those businesses. Not, uh, you know, we only have the New York Times and a couple other big papers that have made made uh, profits on the digital business that needs to change for journalism. We 
typically check in around this time with our Bloomberg Opinion columnists. And today we're so lucky to have John Authors with us, a senior editor for Bloomberg Markets and also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist here in our interactive broker studios. And John, the reason why I'm particularly excited to have you, I'm always excited to have you, you. Uh, is because I'm trying to, to understand the narrative around the coronavirus right now. Mm. We shifted from a fear factor type of uh, translation here to a buy the dip, Goldilocks kind of reversion. <laughs> How yes. should we understand this? Okay. Um, first of all, plainly, it has all the classic aspects of a black swan. I'm not saying the damage that is done so far counts, counts as a black swan, but there is the risk of something where we simply cannot estimate the the uh, the probability of a very serious outcome, and we're not sure exactly how expensive that very serious outcome could be. So you have that automatically is exactly the kind of thing that that markets find it very difficult to price. Now, what you have at present is a belief that we were in um, the beginning stages of a reflationary cycle at the end of last year. Whether how much of that is down to phase one of the trade deal is a, is an interesting question, but there were any number of measures from markets, commodities, bonds, etc., suggesting reflation. And at this point, what we do know about the coronavirus is that it is going to have a pretty serious effect on Chinese growth. Cannot be otherwise. They're closing factories. They're shutting down transport. This is plainly a significant deal for China. Now, that is, is leading to the calculation that it actually reinforces um it's a difficult way to i i I struggled with how to put this tastefully in my column but it's like you don't have purses (laughs) i'm just addressing the nature it's gold if goldilocks it's not goldilocks uh, normally a goldilocks is an economy that's not too hot that you have to raise rates but not too cold that you don't get the growth to help investors at this point goldilocks is dealing with a virus rather than with the three bears and while the while the virus is out there while the effect on chinese growth is out there that locks banks central banks into the kind of low rate easy money policy that means that we can continue with there is no alternative we've got to buy stocks that is the narrative that is running markets at present i would say and the only way that will be overturned within um, American markets outside of China is if we get a serious breakout beyond Chinese shores. So, but clearly, I guess what's <clears throat> confusing me is the ripple effects of the slowing Chinese economy. What it means for mm. you know markets in Europe and and all the trading partners, the U.S. In, included. It seems like the global GDP hit could, in certain scenarios be materially impacted and that is kind of what i'm concerned the markets aren't discounting at the moment uh i would say that they are to an extent in that if you take a look at the bond markets they are in a classic defensive crouch for things to be very bad uh and if you look at wti yeah on your on your on this very show 24 hours ago managed to get below 50 dollars per per barrel um Similarly, if you look at uh, industrial metals, which is where China really yep. is critical, the, the copper-gold ratio is coming close to 
you know the, its lowest in many decades so that is being it is showing up in markets i suppose you still have the issue ahead of us that this really is uh a horrific within china uh so it's not just a percentage point of chinese growth which is a big deal anyway but it really is the uh, factor that brings an end to the chinese growth story altogether for a while and that we're not that we're not ready for uh and then you do have again the issue that it, that that it truly breaks out around the rest of the world and that is not something that is priced in you know the s&p is whatever it is 2% below its height that that is not priced in at all that's still a risk but as far as i can see at this moment we don't have good enough information to start pricing it in anyway so i i, I don't know that i can have any great issues right. with people being complacent about that John Authors, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate uh, your viewpoint. Uh, John Authors is senior editor for uh, Bloomberg Markets, joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And of course, you, you can read John's work and all of the work from our fine Bloomberg Opinion columnists uh, at Bloomberg.com slash opinion and on the terminal at O-P-I-N Go on the terminal. They do great work and uh, we love having them as a resource for Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.